We're going to start, uh, go back into our series in the book of Acts. So can you open up to Acts chapter uh, uh, 10, because that's where we're going to be. This series has been one of not taking the whole of the book of Acts. We're, we're actually, this is, this is a bracketed series for term three. We're actually in the middle of our series in Mark. And we've taken a moment to look at the book of Acts in short form by looking at all of the high points where, where all of the big powerful sermons, because if you follow the structure of the book of Acts, it really follows the sermons. They're the big landmarks. And so we've been looking at all of these powerful sermons from Peter. And uh, uh, last week we looked at the one from Stephen. And we're going to see uh, what God does through preaching. Uh, one of our, our aims in this series has been to, to see the priority of evangelism. And I'm, I'm, I'm in no way trying to hide my cards. I want you to be more zealous, more active, more believing that God uses us as clay jars, though we are, when we open our mouth and speak in the workplace, at home, in the neighborhood, in the, in the city, uh, in public proclamation or in conversation, God uses that. When we speak well of his son, God blesses that to people's salvation. And so I, we've, been, we've been focusing on that, the priority of evangelism for the church. We've been seeing God's favor on preaching. I, I believe that preaching, preaching Jesus and preaching the gospel, whether you're an ordained minister or not, is God's favorite activity. He loves that. It is the thing that focuses most on Jesus and shines him most clearly. And we, we've been seeing how God uses the proclamation to further the kingdom step by step. So that so far, every time there's been one of these big sermons, God's the next couple of lines or chapters, God's used that to sort of tip over the next chapter of the church. So we saw uh, Peter preach in, in Pentecost and, 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 all, and the church was birthed and gathered and they, they had the first megachurch. And then after that, we've been seeing them uh, preaching in the, in the temple. Then they got into all sorts of trouble from the authorities. And so now that's a new chapter of the church to wrestle with. Who do we listen to? The guys with the sword or God? God raised the last guy. The, the guys with the swords and the crosses killed. His name's Jesus. So we're going to side with God. Let's, let's keep preaching. And, and now Stephen was out. And as soon as Stephen finished his sermon, where he proclaimed the guilt of the Jews the glory of Jesus at the right hand of God, they picked up stones and they killed him. They, 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 they illegally, they didn't have the legal right to do this as Jews within the, the empire of Rome, but they broke the law. They were so enraged. They, they threw stones at him until he was dead, a bloody mess on the ground. And just off center stage was this man named Saul of Tarsus, a Jewish teacher. He was holding all of the cloaks of the guys, overseeing the ceremony, and then he would go on to continue this sort of persecution throughout Jerusalem and Judea. And, and you know the story in Acts chapter 9, he gets converted. God just plucks this, this pretty boy out of the center. of Everybody loved him. He was the star child of Jerusalem. God plucked him and put him into the kingdom of his beloved son and turned him into a preacher. So, so then he starts preaching. Of course, all the Christians are a little bit skeptical, uh, but, but eventually they affirm him. They understand he's preaching the gospel. He's spreading. But because of the persecution, but before his, his, uh, his conversion, because of the persecution, the, the church did what they were supposed to have already done, which was spread, gather, uh, sorry, not gather. I, I, the, the opposite. Now I can't think of it. Spread. Let's go back to the, the same word. They, they were meant to, thank you. Uh, it's early. Uh, they were meant to, to spread. They were meant to go out and take the gospel of Jesus to, do you remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? 
They were supposed to go throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, that, that, that part of the world that we hate, those half-caste Jews, half-pagans, half we don't like them, go there and then to the ends of the earth among the Gentiles. That's what Jesus told them would happen once they received the Spirit. But they, like good little Christians, just, just, just focused on their fellowship, stayed nearby, stayed where it was safe. And so what we're going to see today is the way that God forced the hand of Peter the Apostle. He forced his hand to take the gospel to the Gentile. If this had not happened, this is, this is such a significant chapter of Scripture. If this did not happen, there would be no such thing as a Gentile church throughout history. It took this, this intentional interaction from God to Peter to make the Gentiles hear the gospel. So, so just before we start reading in verse 27 and onwards, um, I'll give you a little bit of uh, further background so we can set the scene. Philip was one of the deacons who, when, when they all spread from the persecution, uh, when God scattered them all, that's the word I was going for. Thank you for whoever was praying. Scatter. That's what they were supposed to do. They scattered. And what chapter 10 tells us is they were going around speaking the word to nobody except Jews. Because there was Jews in, in all nations, all across the, the globe, of course. They were going around speaking the gospel in all places, but only to Jews. But Philip had this, had this drive, he had the zeal, and he took it to the Samaritans and thought, why not, here's some souls. He starts preaching and doing miracles, and people en masse are being converted, so that the apostles have to go down and confirm that this is actually happening. Non-Jews are receiving the salvation of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is falling on them. This was amazing to them. But I guess they're half-caste Jews. That makes half sense. What happened next is that Philip was plucked out of there, thrown down, and he spoke to the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you remember that story? He's reading Isaiah 53. He's riding his chariot. Philip runs up to him, asks if he understands it, and this guy has no clue. He preaches the gospel. He gets saved. And yet, what we're going to see today in Cornelius' conversion, we're going to see the first full-blooded Gentile conversion. When we speak, when we get our minds into a Jewish mindset, and we think of the Gentiles, just think of anybody other than a Jew. Every nation other than Israel was a Gentile. They were unclean. They were not God's people. They worshipped false gods. But they came in different categories. The first category of Gentile was, was the proselyte. These are the ones, the Gentiles, who had, who had actually heard of the Jewish God. They'd sort of read some of the Jewish scriptures. Maybe they'd attended a couple of synagogues, and they realized, this is the true God. I want his salvation. I want to leave behind my religion, my other, that, that nation, all the way they do things. I want to become a Jew. And so they would be baptized, and they would be circumcised, and fully brought into the, the Jewish system. There was a couple of things they couldn't do, a couple of places they couldn't go in the temple. But otherwise, they could be treated like Jews. The Ethiopian eunuch was one of those. Who we're going to meet today is, is Cornelius. He was a God-fearer, the second category of Gentiles. God-fearers were those who had been pagans, were not Jews, and yet had some respect for the Jewish God. They'd come to some sort of conclusion that you know, Aphrodites and this God and that God. I, no, I don't believe in them. I, I believe in the Jewish God. I don't want to go through the whole process. There's a painful part of that. There's a lot of to sacrifice. I like eating crabs. I don't want to become a Jew. And so they could become a God-fearer. 
Somebody who believed in that God, feared the true God, but not a full covenant member. And then, of course, the third category was just full-blooded Gentiles. No respect for Yahweh, no understanding of the old covenant with the Jews, just full-blooded Gentile. And Cornelius, that we're going to see today, is in that second category. And yet, yet he is, is further down the line from the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch would have been, we, we can, because he was, he was uh, uh, attending the holiday, because he had the scriptures, we can reason that that Ethiopian eunuch would have been a, would have been a I want to say full proselyte, except he wouldn't have been able to receive circumcision because he was a eunuch. You can do the math, right? You don't go to a barber if you're bald. Let's just, let's just leave it at that. He couldn't receive that, so he couldn't become a full Jew. And so then right down the line here is Cornelius, Gentile, Roman centurion, in charge over a hundred men in a legion of soldiers in the outpost of Caesarea. And what he has one day is, as he's a man who gives and prays to God, he had a vision. An angel appeared to him and told him, God sees you. God loves you. God's going to honor you. Go and send for a man named Peter in Joppa, the coastal city. Go send for him. He will bring you salvation. And so he, he sends his men off. They go and they find Peter. But meanwhile, meanwhile, Peter, I'm not even in Acts yet. Peter has had a vision all of his own. He goes up to, if you look at chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 9. It's speaking of the men going to Peter, saying, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop at the sixth hour of the day to pray. That's about 12 p.m. And here's an all-too-familiar scene, right? He goes up. It's about 12 p.m. He goes to pray while they were preparing something to eat. Uh, he was hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Yeah, he was hungry, went to pray, fell asleep while he could smell the barbecue. Very, but he's an apostle, so he gets to, it turns into a trance, it turns into a vision. He sort of gets brownie points from that. When we fall asleep praying, it's just lost time. But here he is, a nice smell in the air. He goes up, and he's, while he's thinking of delicious food, he falls asleep. God gives him a vision. The sheet that comes down from heaven with all of these unclean animals in it that you're not supposed to eat as a Jew, reptiles and, and tortoises and snakes and feathered birds, and th they were all there, and he knew that those were unclean from Leviticus, but God spoke to him and said, "What? Uh, rise, kill, and eat. And he, like a good Jew, said, I'm not supposed to do that. It's not for me. I know the rules. Nice try. God said again, take, kill, and eat. And, and he said this three times, but God's response to Peter's rejection was, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. Do not speak against what God is speaking, Peter. And, and, and as he woke up from that strange dream, he was perplexed, and then the men sent from, sent from uh, uh, Caesarea, from Cornelius, they come to him, they, they, they tell him, an angel, we, we need to take you, you know how it works, let's just go, let's go to Caesarea, you need to preach. And so Peter went with them, he arrived at the household of Cornelius, where there was a great crowd of Gentiles in this home. And let's look at verse 20, 27 in chapter 10. And as he was, and as he, he's talking to Cornelius, as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me 
that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So I asked them, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, a lot of Simons here, by the sea. So I, went for, I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What an opportunity. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the Jews, the circumcised, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Down in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. May God bless the reading of his inerrant precious word to us. This is an amazing scene that we just saw. We just saw the, the, the Holy Spirit fall onto, as, as you heard the Jews say, even the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit has been sent. To, to the Jew, it is amazing that God would save a sinner. But it is even more stark, more shocking, that God would save a sinner who has not been pre-prepared for cleansing by all of the Jewish laws and sacrifices and ceremonies. If they haven't been pre-prepared, how can one be clean for God to come? But what we're going to see is that God makes clean by his arrival. He doesn't need human ordinances to prepare us, to prepare you for his arrival. He comes and makes clean by his coming. And so we've been asking four main questions as we look at each of these amazing sermons. We've been asking, first of all, how does this sermon show us the transition from the old covenant with the Jews to the new covenant with all mankind? 
We've been asking, how does this develop the narrative of salvation that we see throughout the whole of Scripture? We've been asking, thirdly, how does this sermon preach Jesus Christ? And we've been asking, what modern-day application can we learn as a church and individuals on mission? So we will be working through each of these questions again. I, I want you to see, first of all, how this sermon transitions us in understanding how the old covenant morphs into, makes way for the new covenant. When we hear in our very politically correct age, when we hear of all this distinction between nations, Jews, non-Jews, the sort of apartheid temple, they got the Gentiles over here, the Jews over here, we, we, we tend to think that's kind of racist, sinful, wrong, obviously Jesus hated it. And that's not the case. In fact, this distinction was instituted by God. We're not saying Jesus never said. He did rail against the idea that salvation was only for the Jews, but, but the distinction, the ceremonial, national, social distinction between Gentiles and Jews was actually ordained by God. It was done very intentionally because God's holiness was displayed to the world through Israel's distinctiveness. The holiness of God, how unlike all the other gods he is, was made obvious to the world by how unlike the other nations Israel was. And so we see in verse 28 uh, something that Peter doesn't apologize for. He just, he just says, you guys know how unlawful it is for a Jew to, to associate with, right? They couldn't sit down with the ta at the table. They couldn't sit next to and talk at, on the bus stop. They could definitely not go into a Gentile's house. That was, that was unlawful. He says, you know how unlawful that is or to visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me. Here in that, in these days, now after Christ, with a new revelation as an apostle, now I can see that God shows no partiality. He's told me not to call any person common or unclean, verse 28 says. So where God's holiness was shown through the distinctness of Israel and their holiness, these laws, which were genuine and they were good and they were God-ordained, had an expiration date. They had an expiration date. They were good and they were God-glorifying and they were, they were serving a purpose up until that purpose was served. Up until it would be, if they'd understood the law correctly, until the Messiah comes as God in flesh. Until he puts an end to sin. Until he atones for iniquity. Up until the point that he finishes sin and brings in an everlasting righteousness and, and he gives us the distinctness. He is the picture and we in his image are the picture of God's holiness in righteousness, not in racial distinction. So, so that the old covenant was built in a good, perfectly designed way to show through food laws, through location maps, through ceremonial worship, all of these things were meant to show God is holy, his people must be holy, his, his salvation is unlike any other in the world. But now that it has come, now that salvation has been completed and finished, the Messiah is here and now back up in heaven. The distinction, catch this, the distinction and separation morphs into, in the new covenant, infiltration 
and domination. That's what God does from Old Covenant to New Covenant. He turns from distinction and separation to infiltration and domination. So that Jesus is unlike all the other kings of the Old Testament, who who could only ever be kings over Israel. They could could, uh, improve their borders, extend where they were kings of, but they could never be the kings of Assyria. They were only ever the kings of Israel. But Jesus has been elevated to a position where he is not called king of Israel. He's called king of kings, lord of lords, minister of ministers, judge of judge, president of predecessors, presidents. He's residing over all nations now, and so anyone can come to him. It's like an old rifle that maybe your your great-grandfather had. That is, maybe it's still workable. Throw the right powder in there, point it in the right direction with the right uh, ball, uh, you know, ball-bearing bullet, and it'll still do its work. It was good in its time. It was appropriate, but now it has not been taken and burned and thrown away. Right? We don't, we don't kind of unhitch New Testament from Old Testament. It's there. It's serving a purpose, but it's now on display. We're no longer utilizing the Old Testament food and clothing laws. They're there displaying something historically true, but now put, as the writer of Hebrews says, into an obsolete area of usage. We're no longer acting them out. And therefore, because this is how the old covenant has come to its finish, the new covenant has begun, therefore the distinction needs to be removed. So that the Jew can, and many of them did, continue eating what they traditionally ate. But they were not allowed to call it unclean, an abomination like they used to. And they weren't allowed to separate from Gentiles who did eat those other foods. God had said through the angel to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. In the old covenant, let's ask the question, how did God make things clean? Through the sprinkling of blood of animals, through the the sprinkling and washing of water, and through ceremonial laws. But how does God make clean in the new covenant? By the arrival and the washing of the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus. Nothing else is needed. He is the one, who, as Titus 3 tells us, that we've been washed by regeneration. We're not washed in preparation for regeneration. The Spirit comes and does the washing and makes us clean in God's sight. What God calls clean, he makes it clean by the declaration. So that is how we are seeing in this sermon the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. We can ask as well, how does this this sermon that that Peter preaches to Cornelius and his whole household, and all his friends and his loved ones, how does this develop the narrative of salvation? I want to look at a couple of things. Number one, it's, it's the beginning of what God promised about 2,000 years ago. About 2,000 years ago was, was Abraham. And to Abraham, God, remember we heard this last week through Stephen, the God of glory appeared to Abraham and told him that the whole nation, the whole world of nations, in fact, every family on the earth will be blessed through your lineage. And yet when you read the Old Testament, It looks as if that promise had been sidelined. That one just seemed a little bit too difficult because God realized how how 
thick-headed the Jews were, so he sort of erased that one from the contract, and, and it wasn't really in full swing. All of the nations weren't being blessed by the Jews and God's salvation until the Messiah comes, and as Paul tells us in Galatians, he is the seed, he is the offspring who brings about children of Abraham through everybody in the world that has faith. So that this promise that had sat latent and, and we were waiting for it to be fulfilled, that the Gentiles and every family of them would taste salvation through Abraham's seed. It is finally coming to fruition all this time later. God is not slow to fulfill his promises. He has a plan. He's unfolding it as time goes. So we saw that today through Cornelius and his family. The Gentiles are being grafted in. While God focused on Israel throughout the Old Testament as a nation, now he's exploding the promises out and his salvation outwards like a dam breaking forth to every nation under heaven. And that's what we're seeing today through Cornelius. We can also see, secondly, the, the narrative of salvation throughout Scripture unravels in this way, that God's glory, which had been protected and cherished in Israel, begins spreading to other nations so that, so that we saw what was, what was manifested and communicated through distinction and separation, the Jews being distinct and separate, was now infiltration and domination over those other world systems in the Great Commission. The Great Commission where Jesus said, do you recall it? He, he said to his disciples, some of whom were doubting, some of whom were solid, but all of whom were listening, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, or in the Greek, disciple all the nations, T baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And I will be with you even to the end of the age. When we hear that great commission coming through Jesus, if, if we're too familiar with it, we just hear the, you know, the evangelism conference uh, saying, yep, that's right, go and evangelize and have Bible study groups. Go and make disciples. We miss so easily the, 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 the significance of how he starts that out. What does he say before he commands the, the domination of every other religion through the preaching of the gospel? Before he demands the, the infiltration of Jesus into every family of the earth, how does he start it? He says, all authority has been given to me. How, how much authority? A fair bit, a little bit, a little bit more than David had, a little, little bit more even than Solomon had. No, no, all authority. And was it all authority just in heaven? It was all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now, now are we seeing the connection? Why, is, is, why are the Gentiles able to be grafted into salvation? It's directly connected to the fact that Jesus is elevated by the Father as Lord of all, as the highest name above every name, with all authority on heaven and earth. You can only declare peace to those over whom you have jurisdiction. Okay, our, our, our premier, great as they may be or may not be, whatever your opinion, they can never just walk into some state in America or the UK or the Middle East and say, with the power invested in me, I declare peace, no more war. You're all absolved of your crimes, I declare peace here. It doesn't work. 
not your jurisdiction. Uh, a policeman cannot, if, if uh, 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 having authority in Queensland, cannot just go over to Western Australia and start flashing his badge around and pulling people over. He doesn't have jurisdiction. What Jesus is saying is, declare peace to all because I have jurisdiction everywhere. The king of Israel is the king of all. That, that's why Peter, as he's beginning out his sermon in verse 36, he says uh, that Jesus was preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, brackets, he is Lord of all. He's just, just making sure the Gentiles know that. He's Lord of you, therefore he's your only hope of salvation. Not a second saviour coming, Jesus. So, so we've seen this, this gospel that, that the Jews thought they got at Pentecost. They, they thought they knew it when Jesus was ascended, but, but like this flower, it just keeps on opening up with beautiful colours and shapes. And, and the next one to open up to Peter today through God's revelation by this vision, is that the Gentiles, as Gentiles, don't need to become Jews, but can, can come directly to God through Jesus. His salvation is one size fits all. So let's keep on looking at what Peter sees here. <clears throat> he sees that Jesus is the centrality of what he must proclaim. As, as he sees a crowd and they're asking what he need to say, and he has all these things that must be rushing through his head, but we know Peter. We know what he's learned by the Holy Spirit, and that is to preach Jesus, life, death, resurrection, and ongoing ministry. And so we see exactly that through verse 37 to 43. We see him break down his gospel in exactly that way. Look at verse 37. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. You, know, you guys have read the news. You've seen the headline. You know what happened. It's been, you know, especially, especially as, as sort of an army family, they would have been debriefed every now and then at the centurion meetings. Cornelius would have heard, you know, updates today, guys, on the, on the preacher who keeps on stirring up problems. This Jesus of Nazareth, just keep him in the, in the back of your notebook there. Maybe some arrests later on in the day. Just stay on the walkie-talkies. We'll keep you updated, right? He, he'd heard about all this that was going on in Judea, the, the crowds of tens of thousands who would gather and be healed. So you, you, heard, you yourselves heard about all that is happening throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He, he's saying that the life that Jesus lived, his ministry was one of being affirmed, approved, sent by God who had power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in the city of Jerusalem. So there's his life. He's, he's sort of he's unraveling history now before, before all of the Gentiles, in case any of them had missed the important points. This Jesus you'd heard of was genuinely empowered, sent by God, doing good. And then the death of Christ. The last half of verse 39, Peter transitions to his death. He says, they put him to death, where he usually says, crucifying, where he's usually said to the Jews, you crucified him. Today he uses different phraseology. He says, they killed him by hanging him on a tree. What we see here is a, is a second layer to how Peter understands the death of Christ. For if he had just said that they killed him, 
it would have said just that. They killed Jesus. But he says that they hung him on a tree, which if you're a Jew, that, that, that just starts sending off alarm bells. You know your scripture. That is the way that you hang a cursed person. That's what you do to somebody that God has abandoned and said, don't give them an honorable burial. Hang them on the tree to die. That was a sign of God's curse. So when Peter says they killed him and it was on a tree, this man sent by God, approved by God, affirmed by God, and God let him die on a tree, you're supposed to hear that he was bearing the curse of sinners. It was not just happenstance and circumstance that Jesus was taken one day and thrown on the cross and killed, but the divine design of salvation, that Jesus was condemned in our place carrying our sin on the cross. Peter preaches the death of Christ. Every hero story would probably pass over things like this, the embarrassing parts of, of politicians' pasts or, or the, the embarrassing parts of, of war heroes, you know, blunders on the field. But, but that's not what we see in the Jesus story. The gospel doesn't, doesn't um, put makeup all over and try and make this, this story of Jesus just one of continual perfection and victory and, and it was all great and he was rich and had all the gals. No, it's the ugliest of realities. The God-sent Savior was crucified, likely naked, destroyed in the flesh. This, this, this weeping, bleeding sack of, of, of meat on the cross, barely recognizable as this man Jesus. People, it says, did not recognize him. He didn't even look human, Isaiah says. And that's God's Savior. The answer to the confusion in Cornelius' mind comes in the very next line, in verse 40. But... God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. What God had cursed in Jesus, where the Jews had killed Jesus, God raised him back up. As he had proved Jesus through the miracles, he now proves Jesus through resurrection as his sent, approved, affirmed Savior. Verse 40, he raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, there was at least 500, to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. He's particularly, though, referring to the apostles. Us apostles who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This is a real-life resurrection. And then he says to Cornelius, where he has told him his life, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. In previous sermons, I, I, I want you to see that the flow... In previous sermons, Peter then goes straight to, and then he was ascended and sat on the, at, at the throne at God's right hand, right? He quotes Psalm 10 and that. It's not what he does here. To the Gentiles, he goes from resurrection to great commission because there's a different emphasis here. He's not just emphasizing to the Jews the Old Testament prophecies for the Jews and the Messiah. He's emphasizing for the Gentiles the spreading of that gospel beyond Israel. And so he says, he, he, he puts sort of uh, uh, quotes Jesus in his own words of the Great Commission. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He is the one 
to whom all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What does this sermon tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he is the one chosen, appointed, anointed, and empowered by God to bring salvation. The one who is judge of the living and the dead is Jesus. He judges everybody. There's no other option. The, the Muslim does not open their eyes after death to meet with Muhammad. The Buddhist does not open their eyes after death to be faced by Buddha and, and then be, be weighed up as, to, as to, to whether they did well enough in their system. There's just so many people who look at this text and say, you know, quote Peter from the beginning of the sermon where he said, God is happy with anybody that does what is pleasing with him in any nation under heaven. Maybe when I read that, you sort of you got nervous at that reading. What are we meant to make of that? What Peter is not saying is that anybody who does you know, the best they can, if they're genuine in their religion, God sees that as enough. And he saves them. That, that, it's not at all what we're to read. Because if that's what we were to read, then why would God need to send Peter to him to preach the gospel and be saved if he didn't need the gospel to be saved? Don't do maths that way. Don't, don't make that equation. But rather realize that what Peter is saying is that anyone who is out in the world, wherever they are, if they turn, turn in on themselves and see sin, and they turn outward and, and, and know God and, and desire forgiveness and want to be saved from who they are and they reject all of these foreign gods to that person, whoever they are, wherever they are, God will send them a missionary. That's what we're supposed to read from that. Not that, not that God sends angels and they preach, because they don't. Not that we're to read that any religion, as long as you do your best, is enough but that wherever you are, in what other religion, if you desire salvation truly, in other words, if you're chosen by God and given those desires, God will send a missionary to proclaim. So Peter understands this. He sees in this opportunity of this amazing great commission that Jesus is the savior of all. He's the only savior. He was the one witnessed by the whole Old Testament through the prophets, verse 43 says. His is the name that brings forgiveness of sins. He is the one who is able to save everyone who believes, Peter says. You see how all-encompassing all of these words are. No distinction, no, no, no narrowing in on as long as your last name has a ch in it like the Jews do. You know, as long as your father is at least third generation from... No, none of that. Anyone of any color, of any blood, of any background religion can be saved by Jesus. So as we start closing out, what modern day application can we learn from this? As individuals, as a church. Number one, I want to say that Jesus is in preaching. Jesus is in gospel preaching. And I'm not saying, although it's true, that preaching should be about Jesus that Jesus should be the content of good preaching. That's true. I'm, I am saying that. But more than that, what we need to realize is that where sermons and proclamations and evangelistic conversations, where their content is about Jesus, Jesus is in those sermons. He's there. 
He's covenantally present by his Holy Spirit and himself doing the preaching. I, I know you don't believe me when I say that. That sounds really, you know, liberal theologian. Jesus is, is there preaching. No, no, friends, read with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. When in the very context, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, the very context of explaining the, the unity that Jews and Gentiles now have, in verse 17 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, and he, Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you who were near. We see that very same language in verse 36, that Jesus came to proclaim the good news of peace. And here's Paul saying, in Ephesus, where Jesus never stood foot, where Peter went, where Paul went, where the apostles went through, he's saying, when we came and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus, I can just call that, because the Holy Spirit was so infilling it and so blessing it, we can call that Jesus coming to you. One of, one of the aims for this series is to, be, is to see how, how elevated the act and ordinance of preaching is for the church. That it's not just a man, it's not just a performance, it's not just a lecture. There's nothing like sermons about Jesus. Jesus is not just in the content, he is there covenantally in the power and presence of it. Jesus preaches through us when we preach him. He is the one that is preached and proclaimed by the apostles that even though Hear the distinction. Even though Jesus is the Savior of the world, comma, he applies that salvation through instruments. And the instrumentality is humans opening, opening their mouth and speaking about him. That's his chosen from before the foundations of the earth. That's his chosen instrument to establish his kingdom. Humans opening our mouth, speaking about Jesus. Secondly, what's, a, what's an application we can take here from what Peter has said? We should, like, like the Jews of the first century, have to wrestle with this, this, this unfathomable reality that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on Gentiles. We also should be careful to not call unclean what God has called clean. We must remind ourselves that all of us, every human is within the reach of the gospel. That while we're often tempted to lean towards or associate with or, or, or believe that the gospel will be effective for people who look like us or who dress like us or who smell like us or who eat like us or who look like us, we're so naturally, as humans, tempted to do that. We must be careful to remind ourselves that everyone is equal, equally within reach of the gospel. And that once somebody does believe, once the Holy Spirit does fall and fill them with new desires for Jesus Christ, everybody in Christ has no ethnic distinction. We recognize and praise God for the different colors and cultures represented in any church. But there is no distinction. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Distinction based on any background of the type of sinner you were, the religion you came from, 
the color of your skin, that is all gone. We are one in Christ. And lastly, the application that we need to pull from, from what Peter said to Cornelius and his family today is that you must believe in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're here and, and, and all of this is, is impressive and cool and, and, and it sounds like a great Bible story, but you yourself have not tasted of forgiveness of sins. Is that not, if, if you've experienced it, the sweetest phrase you can, you can conjure up this morning? Forgiveness of sins. How dark our, our record is. How, how filthy. How, how, how disgusting is the, the life that we have lived in the past. If, if you spend any time thinking about your sins, how, how many times you've thought lustfully about people, how many times you've manipulated through language, you've done violence to people, you've stolen, you've used God's name or religion in vain, how, how often you've defiled your flesh through maybe sexual acts, whatever it is, if you really and honestly consider your past, this becomes a sweet, sweet salve. The forgiveness of sins without distinction sins. Every one of them and any one of them, you are forgiven. If, if you're here today and you are not forgiven, if you've not been washed, you've not been made clean, and you are still in your sins, never born again, never turned into a disciple, living after the pattern of Jesus and growing in holiness, if that's not you, then I, I proclaim to you this morning that there is forgiveness ready for you. And that no part of your background needs to be taken into consideration as to whether or not you, uh, uh, you qualify for salvation in Jesus. As long as you're a sinner, as long as you've offended God, as long as you have broken his law, then to you, the doors are swung wide open to come to the throne of God. Because that way has been opened through the bruised, broken, bleeding body of Jesus. He died so that you do not have to. He has made open the way through his destroyed body under the curse of God. There's nothing left for us. No, no condemnation from God. No wrath of God. Jesus bore it all in his body on the tree. So today I, I, I invite you to repent of your sin. That is to turn away. Forgiveness is in the name of Jesus. Peter said, all who believe in the name of Jesus receive the salvation. Believing in the name of Jesus means to, to believe what he says about sin and, and himself. He is righteous, we are evil, our sin condemns us. To leave your sin behind and turn to Christ and believe that he is able and willing to save you, that, that is believing. So do that this morning, be saved in this moment, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and know God as your Savior and Jesus as your King. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for what happened today. In, the, in this passage through Peter and Cornelius. We thank you, God, that you forced the hand of Peter in a way he would never have, never have reasoned, never have thought, never stumbled upon. But Lord, you, you compelled him by your spirit to go and, and preach the gospel in, in land that was not yet tapped by the apostles. And, and the, the fountain, the floodgate of salvation poured out. We thank you, God, so much that you you have ordained to save sinners and sinners of any and every background. I know of no one in the room today, Lord, who can claim some Jewish bloodline. But we thank you that by faith we are sons and daughters of your son, Jesus Christ. 
that we are sons of Abraham by faith. Father God, I, I pray for every one of us to, to have a, a greater and grander understanding of your, your salvation in the Bible. There would not just be a few dot points of, of truth or of theology, the gospel, but that it would be the unfolding plan that you have had since before the dawn of time. I pray that we would feel the significance of having our place in that timeline, where we are here in, in our day and in our age with this gospel to proclaim the, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, just as every other generation has had to do. I pray, God, that you would make us faithful stewards of the gospel, that we don't hold it or hide it or bury it, but that we would speak it boldly, loudly, continually, lovingly, welcomingly, with open arms to any that will come. Please bring in sinners to this church and save them. Send us out into the world and save sinners through our lives and witness. Lord, we, we are hopeless without you. We have no hope or, 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 or glimmer of salvation if you do not pour your Holy Spirit out and turn people's hearts into responding, believing hearts. So would you do that today, Lord? To those who are still rejecting you, and maybe they're in Christian families, maybe they've grown up in church, maybe they have attempted a religious lifestyle to, to impress you or get themselves over the line, Lord, I pray that any sinner here that is not yet in Jesus Christ would be forgiven, would be saved and transformed. And for this hope, we all pray through the Spirit and in the name of your glorious and victorious Son. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.